This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com, the Big Change Program, and Well Start Health. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a passionate and problem-solving life. So today's guest, Matt Tolman, wants 30% of the U.S. population to go plant-based by the year 2030. And it's not an idle wish. Uh, Matt's doing something about it. Actually, a lot of things. Matt is a longtime policy wonk, entrepreneur, biohacker, and venture capital guy. And he brings all these talents and outlooks to bear on the central problems of our time in history, all of which, he points out, can be solved or significantly improved by a global switch to a plant-based diet. Our conversation is wide-ranging. We talk about uh, Ray Dalio, the investor. We talk about quantified self, a whole bunch of stuff. And I won't get into the uh, details right now so that you can enjoy the conversation as it happens. But before we get there, a couple of quick items in business. One is the coach training program that I'm running for WellStart is about to get underway next week. So if you are interested... In finding out more about that training, the uh, first step is to read the description of the program, and then if you're interested, to schedule an enrollment conversation with me, an enrollment interview. And you can start that process at plantyourself.com slash coach training. That's one word, plantyourself.com slash coach training. Second thing is, quickly, I have a favor to ask of you. I uh, upgraded my microphone. I'm using a new microphone now. And I'd like to switch back to the old one for just a few seconds and get your opinion on, is it worth it? Because it was like 200 bucks. And if it's not going to make a big difference, I'm just going to return it. So hold on. And here I am back with the other older mic. Okay, here I am. I'm back with the other older mic. Um, so can you hear a difference? Is it worth the uh, 200 bucks for the upgrade? Or... Should I return it and spend the $200 on something more useful like kale? So there's a few ways to let me know what you think. One is just email me, hj at plantyourself.com, and say, I like the new one or I like the old one. You could uh, tweet at me, at AskHowie, or you can go and leave a comment at today's episode, which is plantyourself.com slash 273. Anyway, I appreciate it. And now back to the new mic and the introduction. Okay, expensive new mic, end of announcements, and ready for today's conversation. So without further ado, Matt Tolman, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Howard. I'm really excited, and thank you for all you do for the, the plant movement. It's a, it's a pleasure, and uh, one, one of the great pleasures is to get a chance to talk to folks like you. Why don't you start by telling people uh, who you are and what you do? Oof. Well, that might take the entire hour of podcast, but uh, I'll, I'll try to keep it short. Um, who am I? Well, I, uh, I was raised in Colorado, so first and foremost, I, I like to think of myself as someone who enjoys the outdoors and, and a more laid-back lifestyle. Um, <laughs> but my my upbringing led me more into the uh, the venture capital and, and entrepreneurship worlds, and uh, as a result, I'm I'm not very laid-back. <laughs> so. There's a little bit of a duality, I guess, if you want to put me on the spot and ask me who I am. Um, what I do is a, a combination of all those things. So I like to think of myself as an athlete, and uh, we can talk a little bit more about that and, and my lifestyle. Um, but more so, you know, I'm really focused on creating new businesses and, and helping other entrepreneurs do the same. Um, and in particular, for the last four or five years, I've been 
really focused on the plant-based space um, and seeing what we can do to create you know more products and services um, that are more conducive to this lifestyle that make the transition more frictionless do all these different things that are ultimately help this movement grow because that's my underlying goal and, and we can talk about why that's my goal. Um, but I'd like to see 30% of the uh, population go plant-based by 2030. Um, I think that'll, in essence, be something of a tipping point, um, at which point large corporations, politicians will inevitably be looking at that 30% voting block, so to speak, um, and that you know, consumer group um, as something that they just can't ignore. Um, and when that happens, you know, more and more of these products will just sort of uh, de facto be vegan because um, they don't want to cut out one third of the marketplace. And, and likewise, you know, we can obviously talk about electoral politics, but if you see 30% of the population um, go plant-based, you know, that's enough to elect a, a president since we only have about 60% of the population turn out, you know, and 50% of that uh, voting group is is worth the win. So, so that's really what I'm focused on. Like I say, it's, it's all about creating these new opportunities to make this lifestyle that much more fun, frictionless, and, and easy to attain. Cool. So let's, let's talk about your, bus your, your um, business experience before you got into the plant-based movement, because you're bringing a lot of, of understanding, of entrepreneurship, of how things grow correctly. You're coming into a movement that you know, ha has its roots to some extent in the hippie counterculture of the 60s <laughs> with, you know, kind of anything related to money was was something we'd rather not think about. So talk about your like, how did you become an entrepreneur or how did you know you were one? Well, it's funny, actually. I, and this is, you know, the, the God, God's honest truth. I don't think I could have told you what an entrepreneur was through most of my college career, even. You know, it, it wasn't cool back then, <laughs> the way that Shark Tank and, and other programs have made it today. Um, and and it just wasn't part of my, my lexicon. Um, I, I was a political science major, you know, very much focused on international relations. Right out of school, I went into working for a think tank. So I, I very much thought policy work was going to be my future. Um, I got lucky and had some um, really successful business guys uh, take interest in me and you know lure me out of that world essentially and, and give me some incredible opportunities. Um, and early on, like I said, I, I started off in, in venture capital as actually investing other people's money and, and obviously uh, working with those portfolio companies. And, and that gave me an incredibly broad aperture into different types of businesses, business models, you know, what makes for a successful management team, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and I really, you know, obviously I didn't get an MBA, but I, I like to think that this was more valuable than anything I could have learned in a classroom. Um, I, I was integral in starting a couple different businesses, none of which I would say was my company until I played my hand in the education technology space. Um, we created a business that helped classrooms and, and for that matter, districts eventually make that transition to a fully digital way of teaching and learning. Um, and we very much took a, a different approach um, in the sense that we weren't looking to digitize textbooks and you get e-textbooks, you know, it, it doesn't really change that modality in meaningful ways, you know, either for the student or for the teacher, 
Um, so instead, we really focused on how do we change that dynamic and, and really use these tools, being you know all the different technology that we can bring to bear in the classroom, to enhance the learning experience, to make teaching that much more effective, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I did that for about five years. We, we grew it to a, a fairly sizable company, then merged it. And I'm happy to say that that is uh, still thriving. The new entity is, uh, our software is now in um, every state in the continental US. And I think we've even got Hawaii now. So really excited. And, and that was all about you know the impact we could make because I think still today, education is probably our greatest tool against most of the seemingly intractable ills that we face as a society. You know, whether that be bigotry and ignorance or poverty, you know, disease, obviously. And, and I'm, you know, would love to talk about education in this arena that you focus on because, you know, I mean, think about it. <laughs> we do almost zero education around lifestyle, disease prevention, nutrition, all of those topics, which to me is how you create a well-rounded individual, you know, and a healthy one for that matter. And, and we don't touch it, you know, with a 30-foot pole when it comes to K through 12 education, and, and obviously even less so unless that's your chosen career path in higher education. So anyway, getting back to, to kind of where I come from, um, I went through a transformational moment, uh, losing two loved ones to chronic disease, um, one cancer, one heart disease. In one of those instances, I spent 30 days in a hospital, literally sleeping in a chair, and it was just absolutely eye-opening. Um, and I can tell you from Literally day one, I called my wife and said, stop eating everything. Um, we, we're vegan now. I'm not entirely sure what that means, but I'll get back to you. And uh, I think lettuce is okay. Um, but for right now, everything's blacklisted. And we will selectively add uh, items back into our diet as I do enough research to get comfortable eating again. Uh, because yeah. it was well, just that sort of you know, eye-opener. Yeah, so I want, I want to hold on because we've, we've uh, fast-forwarded. Through, through a lot of things that I'm fascinated <laughs> about. So we'll, we'll definitely come back to education and we'll come back to your transformation and um, your journey into understanding what, what vegan or plant-based is all about. Uh, but I'm, I'm really curious about, like lots of people go into business, they have business mentors, they have business experience. It seems like you have the sort of mind that is always looking to generalize principles from... Uh, from from incidents. So what did you, what did you what did you learn about business? About what makes things successful? About different ways of looking at the world that that you know that changed in you from when you were sort of a you know laid back outdoorsman and then <laughs> policy wonk. Well, I, I would say there's maybe. Um... Two two big things. Uh, one is the sort of systems thinking. Um, that comes with uh, a policy education, so to speak. Um, and, and what I mean by that is uh, when, when you have to think about how you know, a given policy is going to actually live in the world, you have to think about sort of first, second, third, you, you know, and on, so on in terms of the level of consequences. And so that's really you know, been one of the most useful things to me I try not to think about anything in my day-to-day in terms of how I run these businesses, and we can talk about those businesses specifically. Um, I try not to think of anything in terms of what this one decision um, means, and more so, what does this precedent mean, and how does it affect you know the larger system? 
Um, and, and that was largely informed by a guy named Ray Dalio, who is, uh, was the CEO and, and founder of Bridgewater Funds. And he's just, you know, I, I think he at one point ran the largest uh, um, hedge fund in the world. And he just put out a, um, an aptly named book called Principles. And, and he really just thinks of everything as a machine, right? The, the economy is a machine. Your business is a machine. I'm, I'm sure it wouldn't be too far to say that he thinks of his life as a machine. And, and when you think about machines, it makes it really easy to comprehend that, you know, you have a system of inputs and outputs. And depending on the design of your machine and the quality of your inputs, you'll get a certain output. And so when you think about business that way, it, it sort of uh, does a lot to clarify what your, your actions are and intentions. And, and like I say, so I bring that kind of thinking both from the policy level in terms of thinking about, you know, second order consequences and, and further. Um, right. and thirdly, and I, just go ahead, please. Yeah, so I, I, I love that. And that's something that I work with uh, clients who are trying to make lifestyle changes about that. Because you know, it's easy to look at things like your environment or the people you work with or your pantry, but to see it as a, as a system, like all the results you're getting in your life are based on the system, or as, as you or Ray Dahlia would say, the machine, to, to, to kind of see it holistically is like everything in my fridge is the result of a system that I put in place at some point. And, and that so make, making, I love the, the phraseology of like, what precedent does this set? Uh -huh. If, you know, if all of a sudden I decide I'm going to shop at a different store, or I'm going to go down a different aisle, or I'm going to uh, make a different kind of shopping list, that change in the system can then lead to, to huge changes in output. Exactly. And, you know, my, my transformation to veganism actually started by cutting out meat. Um, so effectively going towards a vegetarian diet, uh, I've never been a big dairy person for whatever reason. I, I don't really know. Um, but I actually noticed that my machine, just to go with the the phraseology that we're talking about, you know, my machine that is a body, if I want a, the greatest output in terms of energy, which, you know, when you're running a startup is is a critical factor, you know, how much I can do in a given day, how many phone calls I can make, that was really my focus. And so I didn't really care about longevity, to be truthful. I, I didn't really care so much about um, what I was doing to my body. I really just cared about, you know, today. <laughs> and am I getting the most out of my, my you know, being, mind and body? Um, because, you know, I, I have a, a team of individuals who are relying on me for payroll, you know. And so um, I cut out meat because I immediately saw a difference, you know, in doing so, it just, it slowed me down. And so at first I wasn't going to eat meat during the day because it really slowed me down. And then once I did that and I noticed how much better my body felt by cutting it out during the day, I decided, well, you know, my sleep is just as important to energy management. So I better cut out meat at night as well, because, you know, I don't want my body ever to be dealing with that digestive process. And the taste just, you know, it wasn't even consideration. It was just what do I do to optimize my performance? So I think that machine thinking and, and what you say, the systems and considering the consequences of the food that we put in our body is absolutely critical. Right. Now, it's interesting. I'm, I'm not sure um, exactly how, how old you are, but there's a there's a whole movement that's come up in the last 10 years, sort of, you know, quantified self or biohacking. And the way you're talking reminds me a lot of those biohackers, you know, Dave Asprey, <laughs> Tim Ferriss. 
And yet they're all into these, you know, minute supplements and things. And, you, you know, maybe it was your your policy experience of looking at the whole system that that led you to simply eliminating something as opposed to adding in a bunch of things. So I was very much part of the quantified self um, <laughs> movement, if you will. And, uh, you know, I and I definitely fell for, you know, the that kind of. Uh, micronutrient reductionist approach to nutrition, um, and and by the way, when I when I say I was part of that, like I took it to extremes as I do with everything in my life, and you know wore electrodes to sleep, um, you know to see what my brain patterns were like. I mean, and this was probably seven eight years ago when those contraptions were very much homemade and and looks you know i mean why my wife married me after seeing some of the stuff i did to myself in the pursuit of self-experimentation is absolutely beyond me but and i don't Ooh, know i'm really interested in this i know this may take us far afield but i'd love to love to hear more about the, the yeah, you know, there was uh, there's a company actually. It, it went under. It was called uh, I think it was like Zio or something. And yeah, the yeah. sleep the, the sleep thing. Yep. So they were one of the first, that. and so I, I that was the only name that came to to mind. But like I say, I also you know I, I remember ordering kits and you know trying to hack the Zio once they went under and uh, <laughs> um, could no longer would no longer support the software. You know, then I took matters into my own hands, but. No, I certainly, like I said, I, f- I fell for some of the ketogenic uh, philosophy at some point in my life. I remember um, I, I, maybe because my my parents raised me in a certain way here in Colorado to appreciate, you know, what is natural. Um, I think that's always been the underlying philosophy that stayed true, you know, throughout my life, um, even when I was eating a very unnatural diet. <laughs> Um, but to give you an example, I wanted um, to increase my creatine intake, which is you know, important for energy synthesis and, and protein th- synthesis and all sorts of things in our body. Um, and of course, you know, because I was a, a naive younger man um, and still am in many respects, um, I decided I want creatine from the most natural source. I don't want this white powder you can buy at the store. So you know, what's the best form of creatine? It's red meat, you know, in many respects. So I ate red meat. Uh, I was going to eat it for a month, right? And when I say I ate it, you know, I was getting whatever number of milligrams I was looking for in creatine. So I would bake a big batch of meat, which now as a vegan, looking back on it, just horrifies me. <laughs> but on Sunday night, you know, because I was a, a, a single guy living in a literally one uh you know, room, one space apartment with my bed, my desk, and a couch within arm's reach of my kitchen. And I would make a pound of steak. And in the morning, I would, you know, have steak and eggs. And for lunch, I would have a steak sandwich. And for dinner, I'd have steak on top of a salad, which, you know, according to many, you know, people, even now in the mainstream, I was eating a healthy diet. You know, I calculated that I was putting it on whole wheat bread and, you know, lots of greens and all those different things, but I was eating a tremendous amount of red meat. And within 10 days, two weeks, you know, could not even finish out the month. I just felt horrible. You know, I definitely gained weight, which was the, you know, goal. I was hoping it was muscle weight. I think it was very much a combination of fat and muscle. Um, But I felt horrible, you know, and so, 
I, I saw that as a very clear signal that something about this was a bad idea. Um, I, I've later learned that much of it was a bad idea. Um, but then I cut out all meat entirely to see what was the opposite effect. Um, and obviously, I, I lost a, a bunch of weight and I felt great, you know. And like I say, that was a pretty clear self experiment, or I should say, a clear result that led me down this more vegetarian and eventually vegan path. <laughs> wow. And do you have a sense of, from being in that community, of like how other people manage to stay on these ketogenic, high meat diets? Like, are they are they fooling themselves? Are they getting different results than you? Like, you know, as 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 an experimenter and also as someone who's an advocate for a plant based lifestyle, like, what do you what would you tell somebody? That's a really good question. I, I don't, you know, I can't speak to someone else's experience, um, you know, but I, I can say that if if you're not, you know, really focused on that longevity aspect um, and you're looking you know, to see, you know, physical changes in your body, um, you know, you can do a lot, which will create results in a short period of time. Um, but that over the long term, I think we would all agree is extraordinarily unhealthy. But I think that, you know, and just to, to sort of offer a, a poor example, you know, if you want to go into the gym and come out, you know, with a larger chest, for instance, and, and feel like you're making gains in the gym, you know, doing what I did is probably a fine idea. And I think they probably didn't feel the differences because, um, you know, I was really pushing my body in a lot of different areas, you know, getting up at four thirty, five in the morning to be on the phone by six and, and finishing my day nine or 10 o'clock at night. You know, my, my now wife, uh, we were dating at the time, um, was living in another state. So I really just worked. And then obviously, I, I also did the gym thing as well. Um, and I think that probably pushed my body to a, a breaking point a lot faster than many people would um, experience if they were taking a more tame approach. But, you know, truthfully, I, I don't I don't know. Um, you know, I, I think that there's really good reason to believe that the amount of, you know, <laughs> heme iron and and all that fat and everything hitting your brain like you know you can deceive yourself pretty easily into feeling good um but you know obviously when you experience what whole raw foods uh, obviously of the plant variety does for your body it becomes a very easy contrast gotcha all right so uh you went into education as a uh, as an entrepreneur what what did you like? How did was that just an accident that you ended up there, or was there a particular passion that led to it? So I had helped put together a, a venture fund called Seven Wire Ventures, um, which has an amazing story about uh, a guy named Cyrus Westfield and bringing together the transatlantic cable. But that'll be for another day. Um, and our mandate was to look at health, energy, and education as the three critical issue areas that we really need to solve um, as a society. Obviously, you know, when, when I say healthcare, they're looking at it in a different way. <laughs> um, but, you know, nonetheless, that was our focus. And we had, hadn't 
investments in health and and in energy. Um, and I was searching for that next play in education. Um, looked at you know hundreds of businesses and never really found something that was going to turn the needle. As I said, you know, there's a lot of e-textbooks, you know, and the greatest innovation there is that, you know, you can highlight the words digitally, you know, um, but nothing that was really a, a system that would allow administrators, teachers, students, and parents, and for that matter, other members of the stakeholder spectrum to all engage in this teaching and learning process in a much more meaningful way. Um, and so I started pitching my own ideas and, you know, one thing led to the other and, um, you know, I, those were some of the most fun parts, you know, um, because it really was just me and, and then it was one person and it was two people and, you know, we were doing everything from, you know, like you see now in commercials, you know, picking up the phone and transferring it to ourselves because we when you know, customer service, right? Like it's, it's that <laughs> kind of uh, startup. Um, and yeah, you know, like I say, I, I had no intention. I'd always believed in education. Um, I think that's just something that as a society, we have to invest heavily in. Um, but I certainly never went into it like a teach for America alumni and, you know, had this great idea. It was really just, you know, there's gotta be a better way to do this. Um, and I was able to get a, a number of investors to believe that that was the case. And, and next thing you know, like I say, we, we uh, built a, a pretty successful business. Hmm. So what were the, the principles, the organizing principles in your mind as to what education should be? Did you start come at it from a point perspective of let's look at technology or let's look at, you know, humans? Well, I, I think that, um, and, and perhaps the reason why our, our software was successful, um, and, and by the way, we did more than software, we went, you know, kind of soup to nuts, because once we had made the software, we realized that no one can use software because there's no hardware in the school. So we had to facilitate uh, putting hardware in, in each of those classrooms. And then once we did that, we realized that the infrastructure was terrible because they can't actually support you know, 30 to 120 to 1,000 students, you know, all sucking up bandwidth at the same time. So we actually had to create a, a physical hardware to boost the infrastructure. And then once we got all of those things checked off, um, we realized that these teachers have been in the classroom for 40 or 50 years. They're still using some of the lesson plans that they wrote in the 90s, you know, that's just not going to translate to a digital learning environment. So we had to add on professional services and working with teachers and administrators and even parents to figure out, you know, how do we make this system work in the environment? So, like I say, what, by the end of it, we were doing everything and really kind of being a true partner to the school. So I wouldn't lie to you and say that I came in with a philosophy that said, you know, something beautiful like Apple, where if you control the whole user experience from end to end, you can deliver a, a better experience. Um, that turned out to be true. You know, controlling the hardware, the software, you know, the professional development, all of that rolled in together, um, I think did ultimately turn out to be a better system. But truthfully, that was just um, an inevitability. I, I, I wouldn't want to take credit for that. It, you know, it was just a function of what we needed to do to even deliver these high quality learning experiences within the classroom. Mm -hmm. gotcha. 
So do you, do you still think a lot about education in your current world? I, I do only because, uh, you know, it comes up every day, you know, whether it's talking to my parents who uh, I'm very thankful are vegetarian and uh, understand veganism, <laughs> you know, or, or, you know, certainly would qualify as plant based, uh, depending on who you ask, um, you know, to some of my old colleagues who are, you know, talk to me about, you know, just being exhausted and this, that and the other. And inevitably, I find myself in a conversation where we're talking about health and nutrition or disease prevention. Um, and so I do, I am left with so many of these ideas because, you know, that's, that's what I love to do. I love to think about problems and, and try to think about solutions. And, and, you know, obviously, the next step is turning that solution into a profitable business model. Um, and so I often think about, you know, corporate wellness programs or, you know, how mainstream healthcare is delivered and, and all these different points at which there is opportunity to educate the general populace about the power of plants or, or for that matter, just the power of lifestyle medicine and, and prevention. Um, but yet those, those, those teachable moments are not coming to fruition. And, and so I'm left thinking a lot about that often. So have you looked closely at sort of the field of corporate wellness to see like what's, what's out there and what you think is working and what could be improved? I haven't looked closely enough. Um, you know, my, uh, one of the companies that um, I was involved with just tangentially by virtue of my position managing the venture fund was Allscripts Healthcare, which at a time was a $4 billion um, firm that that really delivered all sorts of technology into your your typical um, setting, you know, whether that's a hospital or a doc practice, and and so uh, through that and and the contacts that I've made, I've always kept the dialogue going. But you know, I've never done sort of a deep dive into the competitive landscape, and and certainly given what you're doing um, on on. When you're not recording podcasts, I'd say that you're you're the expert in this conversation. Well, yeah, you you, you caught me. You caught my motivations <laughs> to is to do a little free market a little free market research and expert consulting on uh, on the corporate wellness. Yeah, well, you know, look from from hearing some of the intros to your podcast, which uh, I I do enjoy listening to, and and I think it was what, David Donahue. Maybe yeah. I'm, I'm missing that, that name. I just listened to it on a run, I think, the last couple of days. And, I mean, you, you guys were touching on all of those key points. So to any listener who uh, hasn't caught that one, I'd say it's, it's definitely worthwhile. But, you know, just to echo some of the sentiments that you guys brought up, I mean, I, I think there's just an absolutely clear value proposition there. Um, and, and it's silly that we haven't broken into that because – more and more we're turning to, you know, corporations to provide all sorts of different safety nets and uh, call it holistic programs to make employees, you know, more productive, happier, more fulfilled. And yet I would argue when you look at, you know, I think Google is probably the most famous example, you know, their idea of sort of like a wellness program is like, you know, providing a, a chef. But that's not, you know, and, and granted, yeah, that, that definitely 
serves to boost morale and and I'm sure you know it increases pro- productivity in a limited sense because people aren't going off and searching for food elsewhere but so many of these corporations that are just you know pumping you know kind of frivolous perks into their workforce um, I, I think they're just ripe for some you know call it disruption in the sense that you know bringing in a nutritionist educating folks about making the right choice, for their productivity. Like I said, I mean, it was a, a, a very clear awakening when I cut out meat from my day-to-day, just how much more energy I had. You don't have to go into much more, unfortunately. We have a very superficial population. You tell people that they're potentially going to lose more weight and they're definitely going to increase energy, and I think they'll be interested. You know, you go into the, you know, the, the biomechanical um, functions by which that happens, I think you might start losing people, you know. So, <laughs> so, but I think that you know, at a minimum, we should be telling people about this stuff. And and the more that we can build, um, you know, going back to the machine analogy, the more we can build self-perpetuating machines that you know take really good information and put it into this workforce and output happier, brighter, you know, um, uh, healthier for the long run employees. And, and that, obviously, feedback uh, creates a better bottom line for the business. I, I think that there's a brilliant you know, business model there, which it sounds like you guys have tapped into. You know, it's a win-win-win across the spectrum of people who are involved. So you know, I think I shared this to you when we last spoke, but I, I think it's a brilliant thing. And, and I'm so happy that you finally did it, because if you didn't, I was going to. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, let me ask you something, because... Um... One of the obstacles we find when we just tell people the good news, right, you can lose weight and increase energy and, by the way, reverse your diseases and get off your meds and feel much more comfortable and save the planet and be be a better person and all that. But when we go top line, a lot of the resistance we get is people who have, have bought into a series of biochemical mechanisms that are pure fiction, right, from, mm-hmm. from ketogenic or paleo. Or, or one of the variations thereof. How do you see? And you know, as, as a successful entrepreneur, I imagine you also have some marketing chops. How how do you see dislodging inferior false ideas when they're held so deeply and and they're so meaningful? Whew, that is that's a tough question. So um, I, I don't know that I'll be able to give you the right answer, but I'll, I'll give you. My answer. <laughs> um, I, I really think that this is um, something people have to experience, and so I try not to combat um, their pre-existing beliefs. Um, I, I think those paradigms are extremely difficult to overcome, um, and I think that personal experience is perhaps, perhaps not um, one of the only ways, but maybe just the best way. Um, to get folks to to see a different way of thinking, and so what I default to when anyone wants to you know compete in terms of our um, you know nutritional intellect, <laughs> I, I, I'll just say, look, you know, this is really simple. There are you know 52 weeks in a year. How many weeks in your lifetime? You know, don't you think it's worth giving this like two or three weeks just to test? You know, like what was your pre-existing, or I should say what was the reason that you chose to eat meat or 
dairy or, or for that matter, all of these processed foods, as long as you work out a bunch and counteract the damage, like, where did you get that notion? And, and to some people, it's like, well, I, I read men's health on a monthly basis. It's like, well, okay, at least, at least you're trying to get some information, probably not your best source. But for the most part, you know, people just kind of look at me and, and admit to themselves that, yeah, like we really just did fall into these habits because our parents, our society, whatever, um, you know, teaches us from a very early age and we never stop to question it. We never attempt to test our assumptions. And so, you know, I appeal to people's um, inner desire to feel smart. <laughs> and I say, like, wouldn't you think a smart thing to do you know, the, the evidence-based, the scientific thing to do, because I'm usually talking to entrepreneurs who are, you know, try to pretend to be scientists, <laughs> you know, wouldn't it be to test your assumptions? Just, you know, give it a month, you know, in the scheme of your entire life, you know, many of those, you know, thousands of months that you're going to live on this planet, you know, don't you think it's worth testing something else just to see if you feel better? And from my experience, you know, I, I've had countless individuals who come back to me and said, you know, hey, I didn't go vegan, but I cut out this or I cut out that or I reduced these things. And like, I actually do feel better. And then I tell them, okay, now do more, you know, and see how much better you feel. And through that kind of experiential awakening, um, I found much better results than just trying to hammer people with information to try to get over their pre-existing bias. Hmm. And, uh, so people actually take you up on it. Do they? Do they then say, "Okay, now what do I do?" Or, like, yes. what's, what's what's your next <laughs> what's your next step? Well, I, I would say you know, and I don't think it's fifty fifty, but I couldn't honestly you know say that I tracked it. But I, I'd say uh, you know, a large proportion of people sort of incredulously ignore me or just say like, "Yeah, maybe." Um, and and surprisingly, a good number of those folks come back and say, like, hey, you know, I actually did think about what you said, and I tried to make these changes, and here are the results. Um, there is probably a larger group that says, okay, but I don't even know where to start, like you say. Um, and so I have, you know, a pretty informal email that just says, you know, it's like a starter's guide, you know, and, and I try to update it every time I send it out to a new person and it's got all my favorite brands, you know, so go straight to Miyoko's Cheeses or, you know, we have something called the Honest Stand, which is another cheese company that I love. And, you know, it's made out of like potatoes and lemon juice and nutritional yeast. It's like, honestly, the healthiest thing I've seen in the form of cheese. Um, but in any event, I've got a sort of informal email that explains, you know, sort of what that transition looks like from my opinion um, or, or my perspective. And, uh, and so far, like I say, I've, I've had some good results, but it's certainly not a sort of scientific transformation program as I wish it was. Uh -huh. So what's, what's the uh, most rewarding feedback you've gotten from someone after they've gotten that email and tried it for a while? Well, I'd say that what's most rewarding or fulfilling is when they go vegan which a number of folks have. Um, and, and, you know, I, I can't say that I, I look over their shoulder and, and obviously I'm using the word vegan a little loosely because I'm sure they still wear leather belts and, and shoes and whatnot. But in their minds, they've cut out animal products and, and they say that they're going to live this way, you know, because they think it's right, whether it's for the environment or 
for their own health, which is, you know, definitely a majority of people, um, or for the animals, you know, um, and, and I'll take any, any cause or reason that you want is a win for me. <laughs> so, so let's get, let's get back to that. Cause you said, uh, all you cared about when you started was your, your daily output, the quality of the energy and focus that you brought to, to your work and your life. And you weren't even concerned about longevity. So what happened? Like, what, where are you now? What drives you now in your, you know, 30% by 2030? Is it, is it all of the above? Or is there one, uh, one sort of motivating principle that, uh, that keeps you on this path? Well, I, I definitely think that um, that is a motivating goal uh, and, and certainly gets me up in the morning. Um, you know, I guess not to answer your question directly, but but maybe to give you two answers that that may serve to to shine some light in this area. Um, what one thing that I've found is that, and you alluded to this in your introduction, um, you know, we have some incredibly smart, dedicated, you know, creative individuals in the plant based space, um, and and so many of those people are doing incredible things. Um, but much less of them or a, a small percentage of them have turned that into a um, lucrative business. And um, let me be you know, really clear, you know, to me, um, obviously, the financial results of a business are important. That's how we keep score. Um, but I'm not so much motivated by the money, thankfully not anymore at least. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very much a fan of business because – I just don't think that there are enough um, selfless, big-hearted, really wealthy individuals in this world to fix all of our problems philanthropically. I think we have to create businesses that will uh, solve these, you know, critical um, issues. I mean, you know, like having a planet to live on. You know, um, we we have to create self-perpetuating business models that that can, you know, improve the system. Um, because if we don't, there's, you know, it's going to be a really dark and, and potentially a devastating future for so many. And you look, just look at these disease epidemics that we're dealing with in, in the U.S., you know, despite how much money the Gates Foundation and, and all these different philanthropies are pouring into the problem, not, not to mention government spending, which dwarfs anything from the private sector by you know, probably 10,000 to one. Um, and yet we're not making any progress. So I really do think that, you know, business as a, as a tool, as a mechanism for social change is, you know, a, a really important thing for us to keep front and center in our minds. Um, the second thing, just in terms of what motivates me and, and what propels me out of bed every day is that, um, you know, I, I really went through a traumatic experience <laughs> to say the least, um, and, and losing two loved ones and, you know, literally holding my grandfather's hand while, while he passed away um, and just seeing the number of oversights and challenges and um, just blatant mistakes um, that were sort of par for the course in, in the hospital setting. I, I came out of there with a very clear dedication to doing whatever I could to extend the period of time before myself or any of my family members 
ended up back into the hospital system. And obviously, you know, I can extrapolate that out to say, I don't want anyone to end up in the hospital system because it's a truly dangerous place to be. Um, and so that's my other motivation to really do whatever I can to see more people here uh, to make this change or at least hear this message that, you know, there are ways to heal without your conventional medicines. There, there are ways to improve your chances for a long, vibrant life without engaging in, you know, crazy ketogenic, you know, or, or you know, deprivation diet to you name it, right? There's actually a very healthy, I would argue, a natural human way of living that, you know, is not crazy, especially compared to some of the things we do as humans, um, and might actually, you know, be the single greatest weapon we have against so many of these challenges, whether they have to do with our, our debt crisis in this country and how much money we spend on healthcare, whether it comes to the, how much money we spend on healthcare and yet don't get any results for it, you know, the disease epidemics, you name it. You know, I just think this, this plant lifestyle um, is the solution, and, and that gives me energy every day I can work towards it. Gotcha. So what, what do you think we're doing wrong in the movement that so few of us have lucrative businesses or, or even like full-time businesses where so many people I know, like when I, when I first started getting interested in this as, as a career after working on whole and with T Colin Campbell and getting my name on the cover, I thought, Oh, here's an opportunity. So I called a bunch of people whom I saw as, um, you know, role models and mentors for me. And pretty much all of them with, with only one or two exceptions basically said, don't quit your day job. <laughs> so what are, what are we doing wrong that we have to do this most important, holy, beautiful work weekends and nights? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> and I wish I had an answer for you. It's, it's a question that I think about often and, and one that I'm working on. You know, I think one of the challenges is that um, there is not one single answer, you know, and as much as you know, reading Inc. magazine or you know, Entrepreneur magazine or any of these sort of business-oriented um, uh, literature would tell you, you know, that there's a single answer to you know how to run a business. I, I just don't think there is. I, I think that so much of it can be learned in terms of you know uh, first principles. Um, but on the other hand, I think it's just all so circumstantial and has to be based on that particular business model and the entrepreneur behind it and the the client or customer that you're serving. So uh, unfortunately, I don't have a, a blanket answer for you. But um, what I can tell you is that, you know, we should all focus on problems. You know, um, I, I like the motto of um, you, you should sell painkillers, not vitamins. Um, you know, because when things get tough, people look at vitamins as a discretionary spend and painkillers is something they have to have, you know, and, and perhaps that's one of our challenges that, you know, there's a lot of people out there selling vitamins, um, myself included, and, and literally, I, I literally sell vitamins for vegans, so, which is something I would like to talk about because I think it's a widespread issue in terms of the way we're thinking about nutrients, but um, you know, so I fall into that, <laughs> that category cause I'm not selling painkillers, but I think that's the case for a lot of people. There's a lot of health coaches out there. There's a lot of, um, 
vitamin manufacturers. There's, there's a lot of blogs and, and for that matter, podcasts. And I think those are all absolutely integral to this ecosystem. I just don't think that they're really good business models, you know, and, and there are much, many fewer people doing the hard work around um, thinking about a problem and a business model and creating a business out of that. Um, and, and I think you're a great example with what you're doing in corporate wellness um, of exactly what I'm advocating for. You know, I think that, you know, that is a, a, an area ripe for disruption. And I think you can make an incredible impact and you've identified a pair which, you know, in, in the health space, unfortunately, finding someone to pay aside from insurance companies is, is difficult, you know, but all those things I think is, is the recipe for a really successful business. Um, and unfortunately, as you know, um, thankfully probably for you, there's not that many in that area, you know, um, people are going after the low hanging fruit, like, you know, another food item, another this or another that. Um, and I think those are really tough businesses to to be successful in. So I know I don't have a good answer for that question, but hopefully that'll give you uh, some some thoughts. Well, yeah. So when you, I mean, when you say focus on problems, um, I mean, I've seen a lot of people who are trying to set up businesses who are basically selling a plant based lifestyle, or selling veganism, or selling this amazing way of doing things, and so they're 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 focused on the solution and they're going out to the market with a solution and they haven't articulated a problem and they haven't connected it to problems that people have. Exactly. And I think those are terribly difficult businesses to, <laughs> to uh, grow and, and to be successful. And, and, you know, I'll, I'll just make it really personal to say that, you know, I definitely learned this, um, this lesson through, through uh, that education business because I absolutely came at it, you know, with the solution. Technology. Technology is the solution. Well, schools can't pay for technology. They, they just don't have that in their, you know, budgets. Now, you know, seven, eight years later, that might change. I, I certainly hope it is. And, and it was, you know, during my tenure in, in that industry. You know, but but to uh, kind of parallel uh, with this, um, once we figured out that the problem was, you know, uh, teachers' time, right? Teachers don't have enough time to grade, to to do all of the one-on-one -on -one feedback they need to, to um, in, engage parents in the right way, and to do the reporting to the district or, or to the um, principal. We then had problems to solve, and we could apply our technology prowess to figuring out solutions to real problems. And when we did that, we found that lo and behold, we had many more customers who had problems and were willing to pay us to solve those. Right. And so I think that as we all think about business models and products and services that can work um, in this industry. And, and like I say, I, I work with a ton of different entrepreneurs and a range of, of relationships from, you know, being an investor to just being a mentor. Um, and I can tell you that, you know, it's a daily basis that this stuff comes up. Um, but I think that, you know, finding those problems like you have in terms of, you know, workplace absenteeism and for that matter, you know, self-insured companies that are paying through the nose to deal with, you know, chronic diseases like diabetes, which are extraordinarily 
um, expensive uh, and, and terminal in many <laughs> in many respects. They're not going anywhere um, until the end, unfortunately. You know, I think focusing in on those types of problems and thinking about how our lifestyle, how our um, knowledge can be applied to that uh, in a simple and elegant way, that I think turns into a lucrative business. Right. And this, the second thing I heard you say is in addition to focus on problems is like look for payers. Right. So it's you know, like those of us in the movement, we all we want to change the world. We're, we're, we come at it from a very noble philanthropic perspective. And the truth is that there's there's plenty of things we could do that would make the world a better place. But we would have to self fund or or get a donation because it's not a business model. Right. Well, how, how do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think I think you're you're spot on that, you know, so many um, and that that comes from uh, what what you alluded to, you know, given that our our movement was birthed, you know, maybe not from hippies, but certainly right alongside the more countercultural, natural bohemian lifestyle, perhaps. I don't want to take too many liberties, um, but uh but I think that's the challenge. You have these these chefs that come at it, and you know they've got these incredible recipes. But but how do you actually think about a marketplace, and how do you think about customers, or you know, and in, in other parlance, payers, you know, and, and how do you think about um, you know creating that sustainable machine that can self perpetuate without you being inside the business working on it day in and day out, which is a very difficult place to be if you're trying to grow. A business. Um, I think that whole thinking uh, is is missing from many of the you know really well intentioned entrepreneurs in this space. And and frankly, I don't have a good answer for it except that um, I'm a huge proponent of of mentorship. Um, and if any of your listeners are are interested, they can get in contact with me, and I'd be more than happy to help them with their business. Um, just because. You know, I've been very blessed in my life to have um, folks that cared about me and and my growth and development as an entrepreneur, and and I think it's my role to pay that forward. Um, and I honestly don't have a better uh, answer or any sort of systematized approach that I can tell everyone that would work <laughs> time in and time out. I, I think it's just more you got to look at each day on a case by case basis and. And obviously, there are certain um, processes and habits, and and much more than I can get into on an hour podcast that um, you know just help you think about a business um, in a more productive and impactful way. And I think that's what leads to you know profitable business models. Um, unfortunately, it's not as easy as just sort of you know here's what to do. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but find mentors. That's the one thing I can tell anyone to do is find people who have been there, who have done that and who care about you, um, because that's ultimately the most impactful thing that any of us can do in our careers. Great. So uh, for people who are who are listening, who are not going to go on the show notes, how can people get in touch with you? Um, my personal website is Tolman.org, same name, <laughs> T-U-L-M-A-N dot O-R-G. And there's a contact form in there. You know, I read and respond to every single one that comes in. So feel free to reach out uh, that way. Gotcha. So you mentioned um, vitamins for vegans and that you're, sell you're selling vitamins. Although I have to say I've been 
reading your marketing and your marketing is the vitamin is a painkiller. True, true. Right? It's, all, it's, sol it's solving a problem that many people care about, which is that of the, the lapsed vegan. You're you're right. Um, I I should have maybe I sold myself short. <laughs> I did give some thought to this business, and um, let let me I guess back up real quick and and just give you a brief synopsis of where this product comes from. Um, I uh, started this journey very much informed by a you know the a book that has your name on it, maybe multiple now with Garth Davis being the other. Um, and, uh, you know, I've put back probably 300 titles at this point uh, in the areas of, you know, longevity and nutrition. And, you know, I've, I've gone as deep as you can into, you know, cellular senescence. And I've gone, you know, the other direction in terms of, you know, let's just go as holistic and as non-reductionistic as possible. Um, and I thought I was doing it really well. You know, I was for years straight, you know, drank my you know, 64 ounce of Vitamix, you know, pulverized, high quality organic nutrients every single morning. And for that matter, it usually took me, you know, six hours to get through that much of a shake because of the flax seeds and the chia seeds and the hemp seeds and just all that went into that shake, you know, it was pretty dense. So I thought I was checking off all the boxes as it relates to my nutritional needs. Um, and, you know, obviously we, we touched on my self-experimentation. So I was getting blood tests, you know, every three, four months. Um, and all of a sudden, a few years into this uh, vegan lifestyle, um, I got a really alarming blood panel, which showed, you know, really high levels of inflammation. All these different markers were off. And uh, this doctor, you know, obviously, because you have to pay a doctor to get medical results in this country, which is a whole nother subject that we should talk about. <laughs> um, this doctor looked at him and said, um, you have rheumatoid-like inflammation, you know, which meant I had inflammation in my body on par with an autoimmune disease. And you know, he gave me a bunch of names of rheumatologists and all these different people and I needed to go talk to. And, and he said, you know, I think your vegan lifestyle um, is you know really detrimental and it's going to impair your long-term health um, and you really need to start eating animal products again. And and I looked at that like I can't tell you what my facial expression must have been, but I had done my homework, right? I I had all this knowledge at my fingertips. I just knew he was wrong, you know. Um, obviously, I didn't know why he was wrong at that moment, and and he had blood tests that would suggest he wasn't wrong. And so I did a deep dive. I mean, honestly, I, I probably spent you know a month and a half just trying to understand every marker on that test and every element that was going into my body and, and even the ones that weren't. Um, and I discovered that there were definitely gaps in the nutritional profile um, that I had become accustomed to. And those were mainly uh, B12, vitamin D, and then DHA and EPA, which are two omega-3s. And um, I found that to be extremely surprising because of all the books I had read. You know, I came away, perhaps wrongly, um, with the assumption that if I just ate as diverse a set of whole natural plants as possible, I'd be fine. In fact, I'd be better than fine. I'd be above average in terms of my health outcomes. 
And that wasn't the case. And that was some incongruence that really took me some time to wrap my head around. Um, obviously, B12, you know, that was something I should have been supplementing with um, and obviously added in pretty quickly. Um, but I had fallen for, again, you know, this, I think, widely accepted assumption that if you sprinkle nutritional yeast on your your food and maybe you have a fortified milk, you're getting enough B12. You know, I can't say if I was or I, I wasn't. I should go back and look specifically if, if I was low in B12 during that blood test in particular. But long story short, I added in those supplements, um, and I'm happy to talk more about them or, or why those in particular are not abundantly um, available or, or well absorbed through a plant-based diet. Um, but long story short, I added those back in to my diet and blood tests corrected themselves. Some other symptoms that I had been experiencing but hadn't linked together yet um, all went away. And, and lo and behold, you know, I didn't have to stop my vegan diet. So we created a company and a, um, a vitamin supplement. We actually call it a complement because it has just those uh, three nutrients in it. And the idea is that that's the perfect complement for your plant-based diet because those are the um, three nutrients that you're not going to get even in a diverse, you know, well-designed uh, plant-based regime. All right. So um, I don't want to go too far into the nutritional biochemistry, but I am I'm interested enough that that this isn't just you know an anecdotal occurrence that you had these problems and then you created a a, a supplement or a complement to sell to everyone. So give us give us enough that um, you know that, that someone could do their own research and decide if you're right. Well, a great place to go for for more context is our website um, alpineorganics.co, and I can provide you the link for the show notes. Um, and and we've got you know couple minute video in there that sort of spells out you know why these nutrients aren't available to to particularly vegans you know and i won't go too much into b12 suffice it to say that you know i think you have to be really careful just relying on nutritional yeast um and the idea of eating dirty vegetables because uh, as we all probably know vitamin b12 comes from soil bacteria or bacteria in our lower intestine but too low for us to reabsorb. So you have to get an outside source. It's just not on your, your food. You're washing the, the vegetables, et cetera. So find some B12 source. Um, it's, it's probably the most important thing for vegans, as, as I think most people have heard by now. It just, I guess, missed me <laughs> somehow. Um, you know, vitamin D3, just quickly, I'll say that that's not so much a vegan thing. It's more of a 21st century thing. If you look at a lot of the clinical studies, you know, as a population, uh, regardless of your your meat intake, um, we are very low in D, um, and that can have just a horrible impact in terms of sort of long term health. Um, you know, from cardiovascular to cerebrovascular to multiple sclerosis. You know, vitamin D is super important, and that's synthesized on our on our skin. Um, and I'm not sure if you know about this one, Howard, but I've actually uh, got on good authority that the the synthesized vitamin D lives on our skin and is reabsorbed from our skin. And so if you shower too often, you'll actually wash all the vitamin D that you might have been synthesizing on your skin. 
And so that, to me, was a good excuse to not shower for about a month. My wife loved it. But I actually wanted to see if my vitamin D would change. So I did a, a month where I did as limited you know, <laughs> bathing as possible, as I was allowed to. And uh, turns out I didn't see much of a difference. But, you know, uh, like I say, that's, that's supposedly the, uh, the story. Um, and, you know, obviously as a result, since we live in boxes, houses, and offices, and cars, um, we're not exposing our skin to sufficient amount of, uh, of sunshine. Um, and in northern latitudes, it's even more difficult. So if you live in Chicago where there's cloud cover, you know, a bad tilt in terms of our relationship with the sun, and you're wearing clothing because it's freezing outside, you know, chances are you're probably not synthesizing an adequate amount of vitamin D. Um, so again, I would encourage everyone to talk to their doctors, obviously, get blood tests, um, but really be considerate of, about vitamin D as well. Um, and lastly, very briefly, um, DHA and EPA are two types of omega-3s. A lot of the confusion around this one, and I certainly fell for it myself, because uh, I mentioned you know, chia seeds and, and flax seeds and hemp seeds and you know, walnuts, all these different um, nuts and seeds come with omega-3s. And so I assumed that I was getting a sufficient quantity, um, but those are actually ALA. Um, and these other two types, DHA and EPA, um, come from sea vegetables. So, um, you know, seaweeds and, and algae, essentially. And so unless you're living in Japan and eating copious amounts of seaweed, you know, chances are you're not getting an adequate intake of DHA and EPA. Um, and when I say copious amounts, I, I really mean copious amounts because these are fatty acids and since seaweed is so low in fat, um, you are really getting a, just a tiny bit in every pound of seaweed that you're eating. So, you know, you've really got to, to be careful about that one in, in particular. So, again, so what's, the, what's the argument from a naturalistic perspective that, you know, even like how would people get this stuff if they don't live near the sea and eat sea vegetables or eat the fish in which the fat accumulates like how does somebody in Kansas or Siberia, like do, do meat eaters naturally get DHA and EPA? So it comes from fish. It comes from those sea uh, vegetables, like I, I mentioned. And fish eat that, as you mentioned. They, you know, the, the DHA and EPA um, uh, accumulates in, in their fat, um, as does you know, the, the BCAAs and the PCBs and the heavy metals like mercury and everything else that the fish is exposed to in the ocean. So, you know, that's obviously why we go for um, a lab-grown algae that's totally pure. Um, and I can't make an argument for the lab naturalistic, uh, um, you know, someone who doesn't eat fish um, and doesn't get, you know, their, their sea vegetables and lives in Kansas. Um, I, I, I truly can't. I know that there is a percentage of the population that can convert ALA into DHA and EPA, um, but I've seen the estimates, yeah, because of a, a genetic polymorphism. Um, but I've seen that it's like one percent that they're able to convert, you know. And so it, it is, it is an anomaly, or I should say, it is a question to me still. It's a very good question that you ask, and I don't have a good answer for it. I can just imagine that. You know, there must be enough um, fish in the diet 
um, or they benefit from that polymorphism, which I think uh, you know, maybe is one in five, one in ten. It's, it's not a high number of individuals that, that could benefit from that sort of reverse transformation from ALA to DHA and DPA. Gotcha. And one, one more question about vitamin D, which, you know, we're natu- again, naturalistically, which is, you know, the, the school that I come from, is that we, the, it's not meant to be ingested. And that a lot of studies that I've looked at seem to show that vitamin D might be a marker more than a cause of, of all the comorbidities. Have you looked into that? Because I haven't looked into it that carefully. Like, are you are you convinced that there's there's enough perspective evidence that someone's not doing well and you give them vitamin D because they're deficient and that solves the other problems? I have seen some good clinical data in terms of, you know, vitamin D as an intervention. Um, let me say that, um, you know, as with all things, I'm not entirely convinced with anything. And so I have to step back and say to myself, you know, are we supposed to have a certain amount of vitamin D in our bloodstream? And I think we can answer that um, affirmatively, given the fact that our body naturally produces it with exposure to sun. And so I would be the first to tell you, if you live in Cancun and you spend a good amount of your time in the sun with your shirt off, preferably, or at least exposing some amount of your skin to the sun and you get a regular blood test that shows that, you know, whatever it is, 25 L hydroxy, you know, and it comes back positively in the sense that you're right in range with how much vitamin D you need. I'd be the first to tell you not to to rely on a, on a supplemental form. Um, but in the absence of most of us living that sort of lifestyle, I have to look at the data and say, you know, does low vitamin D, is that correlated with some adverse health outcomes that I would like to um, do what I can, you know, with the information I have um, to avoid those at all reasonable costs? And, and that's why I end up, you know, erring on the side of, of uh, a supplemental D3. Um, and I will say, I think that we're, we're going to find out in the next five or 10 years that there are big differences in terms of types of vitamin D. You know, there's vitamin D2, which is um, uh, a synthetic form, you know, whereas uh, D3 is a type that's synthesized by the human body. And prior to uh, very recently, you know, vegans actually were out of luck because the D3 we could find uh, actually came from lanolin or sheep's wool or the oil of it. Um, but now there are actually algae or mushroom-derived de- vitamin D3. So I think you know, using that and you know, like I say, going with the the um, plurality of evidence. You know, I'm comfortable suggesting that folks in the northern latitude are better off taking D3, but I'm always looking at the science, and I agree with you that you know there's more that we don't know than than we do know. <laughs> gotcha. So for someone who's listening who thinks, "Gee, I might want to do this," so how how do we decide? You know, because as you say, it could be a vitamin, right? Something that I take, and I don't really know if it's doing any good. But as soon as I have to tighten my belt, I'll let go of it. Versus, um, you know, this clearly helps. So what, what would somebody ask themselves? Um, to determine whether they should give compliment a try. Well, I, I'm I'm a big proponent of 
you know, evidence-based decision-making. And so, you know, obviously you can go online and look at some of the symptoms for um, deficiencies. That's not my um, recommendation just because I think we're all a little bit of a hypochondriac and we'll find those symptoms one way or the other. And so engaging in a competent, you know, licensed health practitioner um, to get these blood tests done um, you know, the one to look for with B12 is, is called MMA, um, because when you read the levels of B12 in your bud, blood, it's, it's pretty fleeting. So if you just had a scoop of nutritional yeast or you just took a supplement or, uh, I don't know, maybe you just ate a handful of soil, um, it would actually show that you had a high enough level of B12 in your blood, um, whereas MMA uh, is more of a long-term metric in terms of what your B12 levels have been over the course of time. Um, much like A1C, you know, looks at blood sugar over time versus, um, you know, your blood glucose reading, which is, you know, a point in time. So, um, and then obviously I, I mentioned, uh, 25-hydroxy, um, uh, D that, you know, any competent doctor <laughs> will be able to order that one. Um, DHA and EPA are a little bit tougher, but, you know, again, uh, if you're engaging in a thoughtful discussion with your health, um, advisor, which I hope all of us are doing, um, you know, you can have a conversation about what to look for. For me, you know, it was that low grade systemic inflammation. Um, so, you know, C-reactive protein and all those different markers of inflammation. I actually took a, a different type of test, which had, a lot that aren't usually measured, um, and uh, and like I say, you know, do it as a benchmark. You know, maybe take complement or take whatever supplements you believe are are right for you. Um, certainly, you know, I'm I'm doing this as much to raise awareness so that more people don't face that discussion that I had with a doctor in a white lab coat because there's a lot of pressure when you get direction from a doctor in a white lab coat, um, and that pressure against the vegan lifestyle, I think, can be detrimental. So, you know, my mission in this business is really just to get the word out and and hopefully help people make more informed decisions. If it turns out that they want to use Complement, great. You know, for me, it was just a no-brainer because the problem that we were solving is that it took forever to try to find the right option for each of those different supplements. Remember to take each one at the same time different doses, the bottles run out, it's more expensive. So we just decided it makes a lot of sense to put it all together. That's what my co-founder, Matt Frazier of No Meat Athlete, and I decided we wanted for our families. And so we put it together. But certainly, you know, I'd encourage anyone to think about their their nutritional profile on a given basis uh, and think about supplementing, get some blood tests, and then, you know, go off it for a little bit and, and get blood tests again and see what kind of changes are there? I, I think we should all be more informed in terms of how our body's doing, and the blood test is the most accurate way to do that. Beautiful. Beautiful. So it's called Complement. People can find it at alpineorganics.co. Yep. Cool. So before we wrap and up. Perhaps we'll. Yeah, go ahead. I, I said perhaps we'll, we'll figure out a discount code to put in the show notes. I, I, I don't want to commercialize your your medium, so I, I certainly uh, will defer to you on that. But happy to offer your, your li- listeners 
um, a discount so they can uh, give it a try. Yeah, no, that's fine. I just uh, I, I don't take any money from that. So that's 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 the thing I don't want to commercialize because I haven't done the, the research the way you have. And uh, so we'll, we'll keep it clean. People can can hear what they heard, look it up for themselves, do more research. And I would love to be able to offer people uh, a chance to get uh, more for less. Great. So any, anything else before we before we wrap up? Anything else new you're working on or? Um, well, a number of things. Um, we are about to launch our website uh, for the 30 by 30 initiative. Like I said, that's our goal to see 20, 30% of the population go plant-based by 2030. Um, so I'll, I'll also ask you to put a link in there and and lastly, you know, I'm really passionate about uh, No Meat Athlete. Like I said, my co-founder, Matt Frazier, and I uh, produced Compliment. And in that process, we became friends. And now I've uh, gotten involved with No Meat Athlete. And I'd encourage anyone who's uh, wondering about nutrition or, for that matter, looking for recipes or anything in the uh, area of plant-based athletics, um, he's built just a tremendous resource over the last eight years. And you know, I'd love to take credit for it, but I really can't because there's a just an absolute treasure trove in terms of the amount of information and resources that are available. So I definitely encourage folks to check that out. Excellent. Yeah, Matt's a, uh, a two-time guest um, on the show and a uh, an inspiration and mentor to many. And, and someday I'm going to kick his ass in a race, but uh, we, <laughs> we may be in our 90s before that happens. Well, I'll I'll leave that uh, that to you guys. I I uh, you know I'm always impressed when we talk about like ultra marathons. You know, I I fancy myself a runner. Um, you know, but to me, like long distance is ten miles. You know? uh-huh. And uh, and you know our our team over there, are all these you know marathoners, ultra marathoners, and and so conversation quickly makes me feel like. I am uh, not as much of an athlete as I thought I was. <laughs> well, you know what? If, you, if your next project is looking at 2030, I would say you're, you're an ultra social entrepreneur. Fair. It is certainly a time horizon. We originally had said 20% by 2020, which truthfully told the way it's going, uh, I, I thought is possible. But my wife, as she always does, um, usually moderates me and says, Hey, maybe just you know, like go for the long run and <laughs> don't, uh, you know, don't make this too crazy. And and I think that was the right idea. But yeah, it's been really exciting to see all the growth. And and I always say that you know we have to focus on the cultural, the economic, and the political. You know, political is you know for obvious reasons. There's you know anything with food and health. You know, it involves the government, so we have to be active there. You know, the economic is where I'm focused, and that's very much. You know, all that we've been talking about, you know, more products and services in the marketplace, you know, the more that we're going to make this transition and the lifestyle you know, more frictionless and more sustainable. Um, but I also think the cultural element is absolutely important. Um, and that's what you do, Howard. And I think it's it's so, you know, inspiring to see you and, and obviously Matt Frazier and so many other folks that have put this information out into the world and help people to understand it, to implement it in their lives. You know, I think we're all playing um, our own role in terms of the various uh, um, legs of the stool that that ultimately is going to lead to this change. 
Right on. Well, it's it's so great having you on the team, know, knowing about the work you're doing and your vision and your clarity and your passion. And so uh, I'm I'm thrilled that we had this conversation and I'm thrilled that it's going to go out in the world and uh, and hopefully, you know, wake up some people to go plant based and wake up some plant based people to go entrepreneurial. <laughs> well, I, I certainly hope for both. And uh, again, I would encourage any listeners to reach out to me. Um, you know, like I say, I get all of the contact submissions on my website directly to my inbox. And uh, there hasn't been one yet that I haven't responded to. So I'm sure it'll be flooded and I'll have to like eat my words on that one. But let's hope so, because I'd love to help any entrepreneurs out there that uh, just need someone to talk to. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Matt Tolman, thank you so much for everything you do and for taking the time today. Thank you, Howard. I appreciate you sharing your platform. All right. Be well. All right. Here I am back again with my expensive microphone. And boy, listening to that conversation again just reminds me how grateful I am to have people like Matt on our team doing this stuff in the world with all his experience and expertise and all the blind alleys and wrong turns he's gone down to discover the the optimal way for human beings to live on this planet individually and as a a grand civilization and a, and a, a culture. So again, if you choose to uh, to try out his product, compliment, um, know that I don't make any money from that. I'm just uh, sharing the information and doing a public service by by passing it on. I certainly haven't seen anything in the literature that makes me think that it's an ill-advised idea. So if you enjoy this episode and you'd like to support the mission of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave that review on iTunes. iTunes reviews have been thin on the ground lately. Uh, for more information about WellStart Health and the Big Change Program, check out wellstarthealth.com or bigchangeprogram.com. We still haven't gotten around to... Uh, redirecting big change programs so you can read all the old stuff, but definitely go to wellstarthealth.com slash program if you'd like to find out about our next rolling cohort. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to all of Matt's goodies at plantyourself.com slash 273. If you're new to the show, catch up. 272 archived episodes at plantyourself.com. And of course, it'd be awesome if you would be interested in sharing those on social media, uh, writing that iTunes review. And if you'd like to become a patron of the show at plantyourself.com, look on the right sidebar for the Patreon link, and you can make an ongoing contribution that kind of helps me navigate the financial instabilities of being part of a startup. So thanks a lot if you're already a patron. And if you're not, check it out. My wife and I were actually talking about a little bit of swag, putting together a Plant Yourself t-shirt. So if you think that would be an awesome idea and you have uh, design suggestions, you can shoot them my way as well, hj at plantyourself.com or at AskHowie on Twitter. In garden news, we had a great time yesterday kind of clearing out a compost, I guess you call it a pile, but it's more of like a compost mess, just an area in the garden where we've been throwing everything from corn stalks to weeds, to uh, when I pruned the um, the grapevine, and just a, a giant big mess. And I moved all of that stuff into an actual compost bin that I'm building, and I discovered about four to five inches of gorgeous soil underneath. So, folks, this stuff works. 
It's really, really cool the way uh, nature kind of takes care of itself and of us. So we're going to turn that into a bed over this next few days and uh, plant some stuff. And we're also thinking about a cover crop of soybeans. So we'll get some edamame and we'll uh, get to watch soybeans grow. In running news, I'm pretty much back to a painless six miles a day and longer weekend runs. And I don't have a race on the horizon yet. I'm still taking it easy and learning how to use my, my new body, my new hips, my new pelvis. And uh, I'm going to let myself sort of speed up naturally. So it's kind of kind of fun to be in this uh, embryonic experimentation mode with this, uh, with this body of mine. Oh, and of course, a big shout out to all the missing chins and friends and family who will be traveling to Leadville for the Leadville Marathon and Heavy Half. Uh, coming up next weekend. I'm a little sad that I'm not going, but I'm mostly not. Uh, last year was pretty traumatic, and I've got my hands full with Wellstart and with a whole bunch of other stuff. So uh, good luck, everyone, and I'm sure I'll uh, I'll be posting on the uh, the experience when I hear from all the folks who attended. All right, it's time for the thanksy part. So thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. Check out willridenauer.com for more of his beautiful music. And thanks to all you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hadley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Alan Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, John Polinovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elizabeth Ellen, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Storl, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Joel, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julian Rollins, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rhonda Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Jaron Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Bedham, Gila Sayre, David Donahue, Blair Seibert, Doro Nevisov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Equally Mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner. Nick Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R. Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Kelly Michia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Organ, Sabine Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Theresa Coble, Shell Rudeless, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Lowe's, Alinda Ayat, Julie Lang, Home Hedegaard, Isa Tuzan, Wakani, Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Aviva Lal, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Cherry Olakoski, Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morandi, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Theresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle, and Jesse Sarah Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Belt. Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divot, Joshua Sommermeyer, and Dennis Bird. Welcome, Dennis, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>